Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 3, The Start of the Belgian Congo. Last time, we left the people of the Congo in a period of transition. They had suffered tremendously under the hands of King Leopold II's rule, and through his state police and army, the force publique. Despite the propaganda emanating from the king and his allies, they were given no thought as they were forced to extract rubber from the vines growing deep in the forest. Subjugated to the horror of torture, extortion, kidnapping and murder, the peoples of the Congo had a brutal experience under Leopold II's reign. But at the start of the 20th century, this horror was not unnoticed in the wider world. Missionaries and activists from Europe and America had created and followed widespread campaigns against this oppression. These included Belgians, who were ostensibly part of Leopold's commercial machinery. Under pressure, principally from the peoples of Britain and America, and in turn by their politicians, Leopold found that he had nowhere to turn. The option to do nothing was not available, and he was forced to consider what he considered to be his colony. The purchaser, who was held to an extortionate price, was the Belgian people. The Belgian people came to run the Congo through their elected government, which sat in the Belgian parliament. In 1908, Leopold's Congo Free State was renamed the Belgian Congo. And in this podcast, we shall look at the first years of life for what is now a state colony. But unfortunately, here we must once again turn away from the Congolese. They had next to no authority in the state purchase decision. To understand how the Congo developed during this period, we should understand how the Congo was viewed in Belgium, and how this affected the Congolese. We need to look at the Belgian policies, and Belgium's own situation, as we continue to look at our history of the Congo. Firstly, it should be appreciated that the Belgian people, and their parliament, were not unified in their approach to their new colony. As early as 1892, as soon as Leopold took lands and legislated for restricted trade practices, there were voices of dissent amongst the politicians. This was in direct contravention of the Berlin 1885 Treaty. It was only the excessive profits which Leopold eventually squeezed out of the people, flora and fauna, which reduced Parliament's power to oust the king. Ever politically astute, King Leopold II actually positioned himself as a power broker, between the different parliamentary parties, in order to get what he wanted in the Congo. As for the Belgian parties themselves, the Socialist Party and the Radical Party, who were progressive liberals, were fundamentally opposed to colonialism. Broadly, the working classes never supported the Congo venture, presumably struggling enough themselves in the industrial age before unions came to power at the end of the 19th century. In contrast, the King's main supporters were the Catholic Party, who represented roughly an equal proportion of parliamentary votes to the combined opposition parties. The monopoly of the Catholic Party changed, however, as Leopold's atrocities came to light after 1900. Factions of the Belgian press and a groundswell of public opinion rose against the king. The influence this public opinion had on the politicians overwhelmed Leopold's desire to hold on to power. No party stood to be elected if it was seen to be supporting the brutality of the king's regime. In addition, the Belgian parliament had to act in response to international pressures, 
With the British and American calls for a new Congo conference, it was clear that Belgium could lose any link with the Congo whatsoever. The King's reign had to end, and any link severed. Leopold reluctantly sold the Congo Free State in 1906, with Compassion finalised in 1908. The date is important, as 1908 was the year in which the Socialists gained power in Belgium. These campaigned strongly against colonialism, which swung the vote, so the Socialist government inherited a colony which they disagreed with, but even within themselves there were disagreements. Their leader himself was such an outlier to the party consensus. Emile van der Waal was that leader, and he openly opposed the party line advocating that the colony should be retained. But in this case, only for its developmental purposes. His position was that the Belgian Parliament should take over from Leopold's rule, but only to help with the development of the Congo. There was no serious debate as to regranting the Congolese chiefs their former rights to the land. But even with these changes, the rule of Leopold had a legacy. The King's desire to keep Parliament away from decisions over the Congo had meant that the final colonial governance structure was highly centralised. There was very little parliamentary oversight and little legislated power to change anything, so largely the institutions that ruled the Congo were subject to little scrutiny. The first real political change was that a new colonial minister post was created, although even this did not have much real power. Ministers in this post were not heavyweight or ambitious politicians who could have enacted real change. Often these men, and they were all men, were technocrats, and of the 600 such ministers over time, 487 of them, or over 80%, were from the staunchly conservative Catholic Party. The Congo was run by a kind of institutionalised power base that was certainly far removed from any democratic process. What really ran the Congo at this time was private companies and the Catholic Church. We haven't really talked about the private companies in detail yet, but this discussion of power represents a good opportunity. These companies were really formed in the mould of many colonial companies. They were a kind of modus operandi used by all of the colonial powers to engage private money to develop their colonies. As we have seen way back with the Captain Stairs Katanga Company, they were often public and private partnerships. In exchange for revenues and profits gained from exploiting resources in a region, companies would offer the state a share of the profits, developmental commitments and the provision of law and order. There were many such companies which specialised in different commodities or regions. We should name a few examples to give context. There was the Hulieres du Congo Belge, or HCB for short, which specialised in palm oil. This was founded by the Lever brothers, subsequently of Unilever fame. HCB was centred in the Quilu province, a western river province just 260 kilometres east of Kinshasa, which was then a small trading outpost called Leopoldville at Malabi Pool. Another example was Forminier, a lumber and diamond company based in the Kassai region, where the Kuba people lived. This was owned 50% by the Belgian state and 50% by private American investors. There were no Kuba shareholders, of course. Forminier maintained a monopoly in the Kassai until 1961. Another company, which was to grow to an enormous size, was the Union Minière de Haute Katanga, literally the mining union of Upper Katanga. As you would imagine, this was based on copper, 
but the company took the mining to a much greater scale than the miners of the Vasanga tribe, who were settled in Katanga when Msiri seized power. Remember this name, the Mining Union of Katanga, or UMHK. We shall see these again and again. We can draw a direct comparison here to the Kingdom of the Congo hundreds of years earlier, but with two great exceptions. Once again the main powers in the region were private enterprises and the Catholic Church, but in 1908 there was no chance of a unified force to withstand the power of faith and commerce. Any such indigenous powers had been reduced in the Red Rubber period, as Leopold's rule is often referred to, to such an extent that they were entirely disenfranchised. The companies and church had almost total power. But what had replaced the internal unity in opposition to exploitation was the views of the outside world. Still enraged by the barbarity of Leopold's regime, the international community was watching, and the Belgian parliament was nervous. Such was the groundswell of opinion that some campaigners advocated Britain taking over the colony, or even declaring war with Belgium to strip them of any capability for colonial power. This would have stopped World War I in its tracks, with Remember the Belgians being a rallying cry for war in Britain at the outbreak. This would make an interesting alternative history for another podcast, but we will not go down this road. It's time to become reacquainted again with William Shepherd, the American missionary from the Southern Presbyterian Church. Shepherd, who had spent time in the Kasai with the Cuba people, was in support of Morales Congo Reform Association. He had gone back to visit the Cuba in the Kasai at the start of the century and was so horrified at their treatment under Leopold's rule that he became a key contributor to both Morales' publications and Roger Casement's parliamentary inquiry. He continued this opposition after Leopold had relinquished power and he turned his attention to the behaviour of the companies. Like many, he was sceptical that their practices of maximising profits through enforced labour would end particularly with the government structure changes thousands of miles away. One of the ways that he felt he could safeguard the Congo people was by investigative journalism, highlighting any abuses he saw. But the companies, of course, resisted this. The Kasai Rubber Company itself took Shepard to court for libel after he documented continuing abuse. In 1909, they took him to court, but enraged and heartbroken at the treatment of his friends, he arrived at the trial fully prepared. The trial took place in Leopoldville, which was now the capital of the Congo, before it was renamed Kinshasa many years later. The trial would historically have been a sure thing for the company. Ownership of the judicial system afforded the state almost total control of any verdicts. They employed their usual intimidatory tactics. But times had changed for the better. Sitting opposite the Catholic missionaries, state officials, and company representatives were a unified opposition. Over 30 foreign missionaries had turned up in support of Shepard and his tales of the Cuba atrocities. The courtroom could not hold the crowds and people listened outside through the open door and windows. Shepard started his speech, saying, He was no longer of England or America, but of the Kasai. Holding no punches, these are his words. Only a few years ago, Travellers through this country found the Cuba living in large homes, having one to four rooms in each house, loving and living happily with their wives and children. They were one of the most prosperous and intelligent of all the African tribes. But within these last three years, how changed they are. Their farms are growing up weeds and jungle, 
and their king is practically a slave. The house is now mostly only half-built single rooms, and so much neglected are the streets that they are not clean and well-swept as they once were. Even their children cry for bread. Why this change? You have it in a few words. There are armed centuries of chartered trading companies who forced the men and women to spend most of their days and nights in the forests making rubber. The price they receive is so meagre that they cannot live upon it in the majority of villages. These people have not time to listen to the gospel and its stories will not give any answer concerning their soul's salvation. With this testimony and further details of slavery, rape and limb amputation that even the staunchly loyal priests were said to be weeping, no one could ignore the sentiments of a person relaying these events with empathy and real suffering. But in addition to Shepherd's soliloquy, the audience had also changed. This time there were two people whom the courtroom and indeed the company, and indeed the Belgian government, could not ignore. The trial was heard in the presence of the American Consul General and Vice Consul. Despite his announcement, Shepard was still an American citizen. The judges knew the limits of Belgium's power, and would have been conscious that without the Americans' initial support, there would likely have been no Belgian power in the Congo whatsoever. Shepard was fully acquitted. It is important to note that the lawyer defending Shepard was Emile van der Waal, the aforementioned leader of the Belgian Socialist Party. The majority of the Belgian people were aware of what had happened and did not want to be associated with it. Not only does this trial show the strength of Belgian public opinion and their disgust at Leopold's Free State, but it also reveals how the Belgian Congo was off to a much more scrutinised and shaky start. Leopold was gone but it was clear that the companies were complicit and their power was no longer absolute. The Belgian people themselves were also aware. So what did the colony do? The clue as to what happened was found in the court case itself. Whilst Shepard was not found guilty of libel, the company was also found to have not committed any wrongdoings. Belgium was repivoting itself to show the world that it was a capable colonial power but in doing so, it also had to house the demands of those wanting to enrich themselves in the process. Accordingly, investment and reliance on the company started to grow. Didier Gondola gives us some details of how large HCB, the Quilu Palm Oil Company, had become, and the repercussions for the Congolese people. In 1911, HCB had five concessions for palm tree plantations, each with a radius of 37 miles. In taking control of these, the thousands of Congolese living in these lands were displaced, and the homes, farms, and indeed their own palm oil plantations, were taken. In return for the land, HCB set up a postal and telegraph service and laid 650 miles of paved roads and 50 miles of railroad, all of which were to benefit the colonial powers rather than the displaced population. In addition, it was also committed to buying at least half of all the imported goods and machinery from Belgium. The original idea of a free trade zone was emphatically gone. The only nod to the people who no longer held their ancestral lands was that HCB also built 15 hospitals and 5 schools. These were to cater for its 23,000 employees, as well as the 335 European managers. The 3 to 1 ratio of hospitals to schools should not go unnoticed, and it wasn't entirely altruistic. Certainly with the socialist agenda in Belgium, and perhaps from a sense of guilt, there was a new philosophy, but this wasn't the whole story. 
The companies were growing, and this growth required later, and so dawned what Gondola has called the coercive colonial economy. One area demanding labour was Katanga. Here were the copper deposits that were increasingly in demand across the world. But unlike ivory and rubber collection, mining on a large scale required significant capital investment. Drills, crushing equipment and refining plants needed a lot of upfront cash. To facilitate the birth of this industry, a special company evolved. The Comité Special de Katanga, CSK. This was a semi-governmental organisation which held the mineral rights to half of Katanga. It was a powerful competitor to the mining union of Katanga, and in addition to scale it had a unique competitive advantage. It was charged with the region's political control and even had its own police force. It built on the legacy of Msiri, the chief of the last part of the DRC to be captured by the Paladins, and it retained some autonomy from the rest of the country. This theme in Katanga was to continue. One thing the CSK and UMHK did rely on the state for, however, was recruitment. This was the responsibility of the colonial administration, and again the Congolese were looked to as the solution. Initially, people for the mines could be recruited from the local peoples, such as the Malemba, but this would not provide sufficient manpower. Work in the mines was tough, and after six to ten months earning some savings, men would return to their villages. People had to be recruited from outside of the Belgian Congo, from Zambia and Zimbabwe, but soon old habits would return. Chiefs would be bribed with goods, and on occasion force was used to take people from the villages. In particular, many Luba people from central Kasai were moved to Katanga, where they lived with the Lunda. Old rivalries were not considered by the Labour committees, if they were understood at all. But the people knew, and when the power of the colony ebbed away, they were remembered. But for now, under the Belgians, they had more pressing concerns. They were united in their suffering. When they got to Katanga, the conditions were very poor. Here a retired mine worker. Andre Yav reminisces. The misery we suffered was unimaginable. We slept on the ground, were bitten by snakes and all kinds of insects. That's just the way it was to work for the company people. And all of this just to find ore. Miners were placed in work camps, four to each hut. In 1913 an ominous new law was passed which segregated the Congolese housing from the European housing. There was clear legal segregation, so much so that the miner above quoted how at least under Leopold everybody would eat together, which was remembered fondly. As more miners were forced to the region, the camps became more and more crowded, and dysentery, typhoid and other diseases became rife. The local people were continuing to depopulate in the face of such adversity. This was the start of a rapid urbanisation, which would be one of the themes of the 20th century and to today. The situation was not restricted to Katanga. In the diamond mines of the southern Kasai and the gold mines of the northern Oriental province, workers were trafficked to help harvest the resources. These would have become the origins of the largest provincial cities in the DRC today. Lubumbashi, formerly Elizabethville in Katanga, and Mbujimaya, formerly Bakwanga in the Kasai. It is worthwhile remembering these large, relatively affluent settlements. Being the source of great wealth, these were closely managed by the Belgians, but when the power of the Belgians was visibly ebbing away, they were prizes in their own right. 
but this story belongs to the 1960s. The path to these great conurbations was not straightforward. We can start to see the embryonic changes to the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the lack of empowerment of its peoples. But before this, the outside world would once again cause a shift in the lives of the people of the Congo. Unbeknown to them, the colonial powers were jostling on a global stage, and their small master was very much in the middle of it. World War I was coming, and the Congolese would be asked to make their contribution, in fighting and through their resources. We will see what happened when Belgium, as an ally of Britain and France, was at war with Germany, the colonial power of neighbouring Rwanda, Burundi and Tanzania to the east. This, though, we shall leave for next time. It won't be the only world war this century, but the conflict is an eye-opener for the Congolese. It's a fascinating story, and I'm looking forward to telling it. So until then, safe travels, and see you next time.